Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> You know, conservatism is, you know, you know, uh, for, against public education. No, in fact, in the 1920s, uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan wanted a public education system because they despised and they despised. They wanted to ban, you know, um, private education because they hated the Catholic school system. Right. Well. Hello, Faithful Politics listeners. This is uh, Josh Bertram, the ever-faithful, some call me old faithful, host. And then we have our political liberal. <laughs> what a lib. Will, yeah. say hi, Will. I'm the, un, I'm, the un, I'm the unownable lib. You, you can never own this lib. You can never own. And then we have a really special guest with us today. It's Rick Perlstein. Um, he is an American historian. He's a journalist. And uh, he's garnered recognition um, from his chronicles, especially of the 60s and, and the 70s. And the American conservative uh, movement um, it's pretty amazing to have him on the uh, show with us. Thanks, Rick, for joining us. I really appreciate you coming out today. I'm looking forward to this. I'm in. I'm not out. I'm right here on my couch. So, you know, I didn't have to go. <laughs> Me too, man. It's awesome. So, you know, I, I was we were just talking about this before we uh, jumped on to be live. And I'm, I'm reading your book, uh, Reagan Land. And I found out as I was reading it and doing some research that this is one of uh, three. Um, I mean, you it's four. So the series is four. four a series. Of okay. Four. Yeah. It's a series of like four. And so let me make sure I get this right. The quartet. I'm going to, you can, this is my test today. Okay. It's, um, the first one is before the storm and then Nixon land and then, oh, the invisible bridge and then Reagan land. Yeah, is that right? Passed. That's it. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. Hashtag nailed it. So I'm excited because I really, um, I, I think this is a great topic, an interesting topic. And um, I think we can just jump right into it. Uh, I plan on getting um, all of the books, by the way, and reading them. But for our listeners, we want you guys to go check out these books. Um, you'll enjoy them. Um, we're sure and we hope that this interview gives you a little taste so that you'll want to do it. So um, if I'm not, so, so let, I'll, I'll get us started here, Rick. Um, so you are politically left, yes, right? Center where left. left. Okay. So why are, why do you care about the conservative movement? And why have you, why have you spent so much time in research and writing these amazing books, these long books that I know have taken you a long time? Um, to write a meticulous research. What what inspired you to do this? Well, one reason that the subject presented itself to me was that y'all won, right? So as a liberal, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, knowing the opposition, I don't call call anyone in America my enemy, but uh, sure. uh, that my political opposition. Uh, but I was always I had this very weird hobby when I was young, very young, like a kid, 
uh, I would get up on Sunday mornings and watch, even though I was like, you know, a liberal reform, you know, Jew, uh, I would get up and watch uh, televangelists. And I was just so fascinated by the kind wow. of exoticism. It was like some remote, you know, aboriginal tribe right here in America, you know, that like saw the world completely different from me. And I was always fascinated by that. And yes. uh, I think that was my kind of first kind of foray into, you know, sociology, history, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and uh, basically that was one route into it. Uh, another was that, um, you know, my parents were conservative when I, when I was growing up. It's funny. My dad always, he owned a small business in Milwaukee. He, he always used to say, you know, son, you know, when you have to make a payroll, which was supposedly the natural thing towards which all human beings tend, you know, when you have to make a payroll, you'll get rid of these crazy emotions. <laughs> and the funny thing is, as soon as he retired and didn't have to make a payroll, he's like sitting around watching MSNBC all day, you know, yelling along at the TV with, you know, Rachel Maddow. You know, he hated George W. Bush. And he did, in fact, say that once, you know, he was kind of like, you know, removed from the ground of, you know, kind of being a businessman, he could see the see things more, you know broadly. Uh, anyway, so so I definitely, you know, was fascinated, I think, on a deep psychological level with him seeing, winning the argument with my parents, I think, would be kind of the, the neurotic kind of answer. Uh, and then another thing was um, the path that got me there was I was absolutely fascinated by the 60s. So I was born in 1969. Um, and by the way, when I, when I started getting fascinated by the 60s and reading books about it and you know, the, the marches and the riots and, you know, like the revolutions that were happening you know, just about every week, uh, you know, which was very interesting compared to the 1980s. Uh, one time when I was maybe like an adolescent, I asked yes. my mom, you know, what did you guys do in the 60s? <laughs> tell me a 60s story. And I thought they <laughs> told me the time they went to a march. I knew they weren't really, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't, you know, in the struggle or anything like that. But at least I figured I'd get one story out of them maybe. The time they smoked a joint, like that. And the story was the day they had a riot in Milwaukee, and there was they they the mayor shut down the city, so they had a pool party for all their friends who couldn't go to work in downtown Milwaukee. Uh, so I mean, in a way, you know, um, uh, but th th that's just a way of saying that I was always fascinated with the fascinated with the nineteen sixties. Mm. But I also had kind of ended up having a kind of uh, much more capacious view of what it was all about because when i was you know growing up in, in both intellectual and popular culture the 60s was about you know the left-wing social movements of the 1960s that was kind of the narrative and both because of maybe this you know story about my parents knowing that they had kind of a different kind of 60s where they were kind of retreating behind their slate gray picket fence you know in, in their pool yeah. and kind of protecting what they had you know but also the fact that i was uh, spending a lot of time uh, in this giant used book warehouse when I was a teenager, the, the Renaissance bookstore, when I got my driver's license in downtown Milwaukee. And I got just, I would just like, would just gawk at these books. And there would be like Black Panther books mm. in which, you know, guys were spelling, you know, America with KKK in the middle. But there were also, you know, books about how the Beatles were a communist plot to, you know, uh, you know, subvert <laughs> the minds of people. So there were also like John Birch Society books. And I think I kind of developed this sense that the 60s really was much more like a, a civil war. You know, that's a much more na interesting narrative and certainly a better description of the influence hmm. that the 60s has in our times. So, you know, long story short, you know, I get involved as a professional writer and editor and I'm looking for a project. And 
what I ended up arriving at is this 1964 Barry Goldwater campaign, which is the subject of my first book, which was really the first time all these kind of tributaries of the right kind of came together in an era that was supposed to be one of uh, a liberal consensus and, uh, you know, Hmm. set into motion the forces that, you know, um, eventually culminated in this book, which ends with Ronald Reagan winning the presidency and running against the 1960s social movements. (laughs) It's interesting. Now, now the, so, so the majority of the, of the, stuff we're going to be talking about is going to be focused on American conservatism. And I, I love to maybe just, you know, have you define what that means. Mm. Um, and, and, um, yeah, cause, cause it's, we, we, we had, um, we had Amanda Carpenter on a few weeks ago, Dame drop. Yep. I sure did. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, she made a point to delineate between conservative conservatives and Republicans. So, so I, I, I'd love once, to, that used to make sense. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think there's a pretty much a hundred percent overlap now. Uh, mm. certainly when it comes to public officials. So, you know, that's a really interesting, and important question. Um, a guy, a political, uh, theorist named uh, Corey Robin, uh, is, is kind of my, my lodestar on this one, my North star, I should say. Uh, he wrote a book called the reactionary mind and he basically uh, defines conservatism as, you know, attempts to preserve hierarchy and authority, you know, uh, against the kind of liberationist movements that are always kind of ongoing, you know, in the history of civilization, basically. And uh, one of the things I like about that, and there's lots of, you know, ancillary kind of qualities that most conservative movements around the world in different times and different places have, but that's basically the core of it. And the thing I like about that definition is it gets around this, oh, conservatives are for big government. No, I mean, small government. Well, no, in fact, you know, um, you know, uh, Hmm. you know, the, the German Kaiser in the 19th century invented their social insurance system was a conservative and he wanted to basically buy the loyalty of the working class to to support, you know, him and imperialism, right? You know, conservatism is, you know, uh, you know, uh, for, against public education. No, in fact, in the 1920s, uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan wanted a public education system because they despised and they despised, they wanted to ban, you know, um, private education because they hated the Catholic school system, right? So it can basically have any kind of, all kinds of different policy content. Right. As long as, you know, in that particular time and in that particular place, it makes sense as a way to kind of check, um, you know, uh, as, as, as William F. Buckley put it in his resonant formulation in the first issue of uh, National Review, uh, stand athwart history and yell stop. Which you can't do, <laughs> which is why mm-hmm. it gets so weird. Yeah. Now, is, is American conservatism different than, you know, I non-american conservatism well, sure, sure i mean it, it it reflects as all conservatives conservatisms do you know our own unique history and a lot of that history is racial right i mean a lot of the definition of what um kind of modern conservatism looks like is the particular politics of the southern ruling class being nationalized right like when Barry Goldwater, um, one of the, the delegates for Barry Goldwater at the at the Republican convention, he was happened to be from Texas after Goldwater won the nomination, said, we just moved the Mason-Dixon line up to Canada, right? 
So um, certainly, you know, um, the fact that the people who settled the southern colonies were not people who were seeking, you know, religious freedom. They tended to people who to be people who were given land grants, you know, by the by the crown who wanted to basically be, you know, kind of barons just in a different place. Right. Um, and, you know, establish, you know, a system, you know, that basically created ranks and orders of society that was, you know, as rigid as any, you know, humanity had ever seen, you know, to that point. But, you know, another quality that American conservatism uh, has is that it out, it's, it's, it's been much more radically anti-statist. So kind of the European tradition, you know, you have, you know, uh, 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 you know, the Kaiser establishing, you know, universal health insurance, right. Which wouldn't really be called conservatism in America, because the modern version that I write about is a reaction to the New Deal and the expansion of the state as, you know, a check against corporate power, uh, whereas conservatism in Europe uh, is a lot more kind of comfortable uh, seeing itself as kind of a vehicle of a strong state for various reasons. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, The Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. That so so one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about um, Barry Goldwater, mm-hmm. and because many I've heard his name before, and I know I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, and our listeners range from you know, Christian to atheist, mm-hmm. politically left and right. I mean, they're really all over the spectrum. That's really cool. Um, you don't so, see that every day. I know we're happy and, and, and I am much more conservative than Will is. And, and it's, um, but we've been able to be friends so far. So we'll see what happens. Um, it's an old and, tradition uh, well, that, uh, <laughs> the right is kind of abandoned. <laughs> William F. Buckley yes, friends I, with a lot of liberals too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I, but I hear you mentioned, like um, Barry Goldwater, mm-hmm. who is he? Why, why is he important? Like, well, he's what? a really interesting guy. He's done the cover of my first book. And uh, to just kind of give it a bit of a historical context, it's important to understand that, you know, in the wake of the Depression, when it really seemed that kind of this small government business run society had really failed America, right? And there was a strong mm-hmm. sense of failure. And the New Deal came and built, you know, this much, much stronger state. Uh, including, by the way, all the dams that allow Phoenix to have water. Um, so um, the the reaction to it came from the South, but also from the Southwest, in which there was this kind of cowboy kind of libertarian ethos. And Barry Goldwater was from this old line family, as old line as you could be in Arizona, which was obviously this kind of frontier place. Uh, his grandfather... Um, 
got rich or rich, uh, you know, kind of began getting rich by provisioning kind of miners, you know, during the California gold rush and moved to Phoenix and became a, uh, uh, basically the family established a department store. So they were kind of one of the first families of Phoenix and, uh, Barry Goldwater, uh, came along and became uh, a public figure first in Arizona in the 1940s and then won a Senate seat in 1952 and he was um, very charming, very handsome, uh, very charismatic. Uh, he flew airplanes. You know, he was into practical jokes. He was a wonderful photographer. When he first ran for office in Arizona, he uh, toured around the state showing um, a video, a, a movie, I should say, of him um, a rafting trip he took down the Colorado River that was very kind of macho and cool. You know, so he was this really um, attractive guy, attractive in all kinds of ways. He was a great citizen. He treated his employees well. You know, he was um, admired by all in Arizona. But he also, you know, despised, you know, the New Deal and the federal government uh, and um, kind of really upheld this kind of cowboy myth that uh, his state and his city and uh, had become prosperous without any outside help from the government, which, which I really do call a myth because as first, even before the, the, the federal government was building dams, they were building, you know, military bases in Arizona. Uh, it really was in a lot of ways, an outpost of the federal government. But, um, he came to Washington, uh, at a time in which, um, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, really kind of shocked and dismayed a lot of conservatives by accepting a lot of the New Deal, especially after his reelection in 1956. Mm. His slogan was modern republicanism. And if you kind of look it up, you can find a letter he wrote his brother saying, you know, people who want to repeal Social Security are stupid. You know, it's kind of things like that. He kind of built the interstate system, the biggest federal program ever. He built the he started the Department of Health, Education and Welfare. He expanded Social Security. Uh, he sent troops to Little Rock when the governor was, you know, um, uh, um, basically standing in the schoolhouse door against school integration in 1957. So he was really kind of like a a moderate Republican that a lot of conservatives, both uh, sort of um, the strain of conservatism that came out of the Midwest, but also the Southern and Southwestern strain uh, kind of considered um, a traitor you know, to, to, to American values as they understood them. So Barry Goldwater really became a conservative hero for the first time. Uh, first of all, um, by serving on the labor committee and taking on the, um, the head of the United Auto Workers Union, Walter Ruther, who was this kind of um, um, socialist leaning hero who, you know, was the first guy to negotiate things like um, free health care for auto workers and stuff like that. And uh, there was these there were these very dramatic televised hearings about corruption in the union movement, you know, mobs. And, you know, if you've seen, um, you know, um, the Irishman, you know, basically it was a, it was about the Teamsters and Jimmy Hoffa. And Barry Goldwater insisted that Walter Ruther testify because he wanted to take this guy on because he said, I'd much rather have Jimmy Hoffa stealing my money than Walter Ruther stealing my freedom. He was pithy. He was a good speaker, and he was the head of the campaign Senate campaign committee. So he did a lot of touring around, and he became this kind of um, 
almost kind of this 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 outlaw hero of the Republican Party. And by 1960, um, a group of conservatives, and I write about all this in my first book, try and draft him for president. And one of the interesting things about him and why he's so important to conservative history is, well, a couple things. First of all, that he was young and handsome and kind of was this kind of counterpart to Kennedy, you know. Uh, he, he, and where conservatives were, you know, kind of the, the stereotype of conservatives were this guy, you know, with a monocle and, you know, some fat old man, you know, out of Dickens, you know, here was this guy who, you know, flew jet planes, right. And rode on horses, you know, he looked like a cowboy, you know, super like movie star. But the other thing that's really important about him is, you know, he did run for president, right. So he became the kind of gathering place for all these tributaries. And he lost terribly against Lyndon Johnson, who was running after Kennedy's assassination in his, for the first time for a term in his own right. And the, basically the plot of that first book of mine is, was that, you know, the pundits who are really the real enemies in my book, you know, the kind of, you know, smart ass reporters who think they know everything and can tell Americans what to think. Uh, I'll say, well, conservatism is dead. It just just, just proves America is a center-left nation. You know, we're heading yeah. towards you know what they have in Europe. You know, uh, the South. Sure, they're for, they're 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 they you know voted for Goldwater, but they're, they'll come along soon enough, right? This this segregation thing is over. And what I kind of do in the book is show all kinds of portents that um, uh, things are not quite as simple as uh, they seem. And then the next book basically starts with the Watts riots. And then in, by 1966, all of the Republicans' losses on Barry Goldwater's coattails become gains by kind of campaigning against the social disorder of the 1960s. That's Nixon. Hmm. Well, that, that's, a, that's, that's so cool. So, so as a historian, like, I'm sure you're used to seeing like patterns mm-hmm. and similarities among like certain politicians, presidents. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we, you know, we talked about um, Barry Goldwater and I remember early in Trump's candidacy, like th- people were trying to sort of make some connections, you know, between, you know, Goldwater and Trump and Nixon and Trump and yeah. so on and so There's forth. Wallace, so, so, guy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, with, with the Trump presidency behind us, mm-hmm. um, like what, what types of patterns do you expect to see maybe with like future yeah. conservative presidents, you know, or, you know, like it, it seemed like Trump was so norm breaking um, right. and, and like what was straight so far from traditional conservative norms, you know, that it's almost like a, he hit a reset button, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious to kind of get, get your take on where does, where does Trump well, fit kind of in sort of the cool greater about this definition of conservatism that basically says they're kind of in, enforcing kind of hierarchy and authority. Right. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Trumpism is not, you know, not, he, it's not that he's not conservative. It's that he kind of puts it in a different package. He's a different, you know, maybe he's a different kind of conservative, but in a lot of ways, you might even consider them a purification of conservatism. So one, you know, pattern um, that, uh, so history, you know, the first thing, you know, kind of you learn in history classes, that's the study of continuity and change, right? So, um, uh, which but just about covers it, right? <laughs> we study everything. But, um, <laughs> a big pattern in the, in, 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 um, the conservative movement in America, it goes back to a basic fact that um, in a lot of ways, conservatism is fundamentally an ideology of a minority, 
right? The rulers of society, right? In America, they tend to be kind of upheld as kind of business people, right? Who are kind of like, in a lot of ways, are kind of aristocrats. Um, and so, and this goes back, you know, 19th century and even, you know, the 18th century, going back to, you know, the first conservatives were people who were reacting against the French Revolution. And so you have that trick of how do you win power in a democracy when you're basically not offering kind of material comfort to the majority, right? Which is the basic kind of New Deal pattern, right? The reason people voted for um, Roosevelt, you know, was in 1936, this huge landslide was he gave them social security, he gave them unemployment insurance, he gave them jobs on these, you know, dams that they were building in places like Arizona, right? So what do conservatives have to give? And um, a lot of it is, you know, basically, you know, fear of change, right? Which, so they kind of are advantaged by stories that make the world seem kind of scary and often by kind of playing to, um, you know, some of the more kind of um, feral kind of aspects of human character, you know, that your neighbor is scary, right? Uh, and at the same time, conservatives in America, certainly, you know, the Reagan ilk, you know, would sometimes kind of play that kind of open that Pandora's box, you know, of say dog whistle race, racial politics, but they would always kind of quickly close it and have a kind of public face that was very respectable. So conservatism has always had this kind of two-sided kind of Janus face of trying to kind of stir the passions of the masses through kind of fear. But, you know, this is the dog whistle thing, but trying to make it look like they're not, you know, authoritarians in the, in the fascist mold. Right. I mean, um, a lot of, you know, people in Reagan's generation were people who had a historical memory of the awful, toll of you know the authoritarian fascist takeovers in europe so you know just to take a really good example um you know barry goldwater voted against the civil rights act right Hmm. so he basically voted for people to have the right to do what they wanted with their property and if they wanted to have two two entrances and two restrooms you know he's like well the constitution does not give us senators the right to say so uh, but at the same time, he also was so afraid that the kind of racial backlash against the civil rights movement would lead to more violence that he actually went to the White House and said if people were exploiting race riots to get him elected, he would he would drop out of the presidential election. Right. Um, you know, in the same way, you know, George W. Bush was perfectly willing to use the fears of the public against Muslims after 9-11 to start this war he wanted to start in Iraq. But at the same time, he understood that if he really kind of weaponized that kind of um, hatred, uh, that he might have, you know, uh, a Germany situation on his hands. You know, Pakram, <laughs> our Muslim brothers and sisters. So he said Islam is a religion of peace. What Trump yeah. is most that's cont- gets continuous of is he just dropped completely that, that necessity to kind of the second part, the second face, the respectable face. Yeah. He's just going down the escalator and saying, these guys are rapists. And he said, so, and, 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 you know, Mexico sending their rapists and maybe the Middle Eastern guys are too. He said that too. I mean, that's like, people forget the Middle East. <laughs> right. So this kind of paradigm and, you know, it would be just, it would just, and, 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 you know, the reason we have to consider the possibility that this is in fact 
a distillation of conservatism is the fact that, you know, for the most part, the party went along with it. Right. And they dropped a lot of the respectable stuff, too. Hmm. Uh, Hmm. Much more frank talking about, well, we should we should make it harder for people to vote, you know, which is something that, you know, they've been I document them saying since the early 1960s. So um, that's that's Hmm. Trump's kind of gift to us as Americans was kind of dropping the facade of civility. That was represented by, you know, in its, in its most highest form, you know, someone like William F. Buckley, right, who, you know, used 20 syllable words and, you know, just really kind of gave conservatism this, this, this idea that this is respectable. You know, this is gentlemanly stuff. This is not gutter politics. Yeah, because it seems like, um, you know, and, and obviously this this takes going to be kind of from the liberal standpoint is that, you know, are conservatives not self-aware enough that their autocratic authoritarian is authoritarian? I can't get that word out. You guys know what I mean. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> like, like those tendencies. Yeah, <laughs> like those those uh those tendencies. Like, are they not self-aware enough um, to not see that it's starting to migrate? and and affect their beliefs and favoritism towards folks like putin you yeah, know like yeah. like i'm just i'm just thinking like like why why is there this this well, that's the you know, slow... box metaphor right you can't really control it once you mm-hmm. open it right exactly you know and and like when when you're when you're encouraging you know or or cheering that putin you know offer to debate you know the president of the united states and you're almost yeah and and you're not like you know saying no that's a stupid idea he's he sucks you know (laughs) like and and we shouldn't be like kowtowing to what he wants like destroy our democracy you know yeah. yeah so so i'm just like how 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 is it that that conservatives or republicans and i and i know i'm using this very like broadly not not everybody thinks that but but you know the the preponderance of the evidence seems to sort of show that there's more people that believe in you know putin's idea of democracy than like joe biden's idea of democracy hmm. like so i, I i'm curious what, what yeah, do you think about that it's a toughie right i mean a lot of it yeah. You know, a definite factor in all this is uh, the greed of people like the Murdochs and the Roger Ailes of the world uh, and Rush Limbaugh's of the world and the clear channels of the world who, you know, like supported him on their radio station. They realized that, um, you know, uh, by um, by pushing the buttons of the darkest parts of the American character, human character, really, Hmm. um, it just it's a good show. You know, it 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 it. you know, it's like the, if you guys saw the Fox News film uh, Bombshell, you know, about Roger Ailes and how he basically treated the female staff as his harem. Uh, there's a scene where where one of the the veteran staffers is describing to a new staffer about how their game works. It's like terrify people, reassure people, terrify people, reassure people, terrify people, reassure people. Right. Uh, there's a lot of mo- emotional um, manipulation involved. And uh, there's a saying, the revolution needs its children, right? I mean, um, once, you know, Fox News, you know, started saying, well, uh, we're going to report on what actually happened in Arizona, according to the statistics, you know, even if that cuts against the dear leader's 
plan to cast doubt upon the electoral votes of enough states to steal the election, um, you know, everyone went to the next craziest, the, 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 you know, the next craziest uh, uh, host, you know. But, you know, so th- there's a lot of money to be made in that, right? Uh, mm. It's almost like a science fiction movie, the evil genius who, you know, kind of creates the kind of neurological patterns, yeah. you know, that, that, that most... You know, it's like give give basically addict people to fear, you know. Um, so, you know, there's yeah. that, you know, there's the fact that, you know, um, big business, you know, um, uh, if they can kind of keep people titillated in this way, can, you know, keep a party in power that is going to cut them the right tax breaks. Right. And then the fascinating thing was um, um, the capital insurrection happened and a lot of the biggest consumer facing, you know, kind of publicly traded companies began to say, wait a sec, maybe we want want off this, this carousel, you know, which is a fascinating development, right? Uh, Maybe they want a little bit more flexibility politics back. Uh, And then there's a question of, you know, um, you know, what motivates someone like, you know, a Mitch McConnell, you know, or a Lindsey Graham. And, um, you know, these are old, you know, this is Shakespeare, this is the Bible, this is mythology. It's, you know, this idea that power corrupts, you know, these guys really, really uh, have a model yes. of public service that really seems to be about um, aggrandizing themselves and the people around them uh, and using any means to do so. I mean, that's, that's a story as old as time. Mm. Wow. It Not really is. Go, yeah, I was um, w- one thing that I was I was thinking because we were making even these um, comparisons to Trump and 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 Nixon, right? And we haven't talked much about Nixon, yeah. Here, but I know one of the yeah. things you, yeah, <laughs> one of the things you talk about in your book is this organizing of discontent, right? That the That's, conservative yeah. movement learned how to organize discontent, which I thought was really fascinating. And if I look at the '60s. And this whole, it was like, it was almost like what happened in the sixties with this revolution. And as I'm as in your book, when you're talking about all the things that are going on, like same sex marriage and universal health care and abortion and the debates around this. And I'm like, I feel like I'm reading something from today. Yeah. It's the same. And as I'm looking at it, like when in 2016, I was like shocked that Trump won. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing with Brexit yeah, which, uh, which was the international part of it is something I, I don't quite understand. And I, I'm fascinated by yeah. very few answers about, right? Yeah. I, well, my, my question is like for you as you're, cause you've done so much extensive study of the sixties in this conservative movement, like what happened, even connecting it to Nixon as you can, like what happened that the conservative movement survived the sixties? Cause mm. as you said, there was such, tumultuous change right and yet we come into the 70s then with gerald ford carter has a terrible presidency quote whatever you want right. to say like it just doesn't go well and then we have reagan right. through the well, 80s. one of the funny so things in the book happened? is i i depict all these pundits in 1977 after you know basically after carter wins the presidency very closely by the way like i said these, these pundits can be really dumb uh you know basically claiming the republican party is uh gonna go the way of the Whigs. like it's and you even see that now you know whenever a democrat wins uh but but you know what they didn't understand 
And what a lot of liberals didn't understand at the time, they're like, oh, we have this Democratic president. We've been working on all these projects since the 60s, like, you know, gay rights, and we're going to finally push it over the goal line. What they didn't appreciate was once the kind of social revolutions, which were very disruptive of the way people saw the world, you know, people, some people on the right, you know, talked about, you know, God's plan for the family, right? It's like, it's, it's mom and dad. And, you know, just like it's been, you know, one man, one woman, just like they had in the Old Testament. Oh, wait, no. Um, uh, you know, so, 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 but the 70s was when all the 1960s social revolutions were really working their way into the mainstream, right? So you begin to see states passing uh, laws protecting what they called affect, affectational preference, uh, you know, and you began to see, you know, the push of, for the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. And, uh, and, and, and so all the things that were kind of, you know, the things that crazy radical hippies were doing in the sixties were inside the state capitals in the seventies. So that provided kind of like a rocket fuel. So the answer is how do they survive the sixties? The answer is the sixties, right? Um, you know, progress begets reaction. (laughs) Change is scary, right? So what these guys did, these new, new right organizers, they welcomed division and they welcomed kind of corros- corrosive relationship between Americans. And they would actually, when, when I say organizing discontent, in a lot of ways that's, ways, that's what all politicians do. But what they specifically and aggressively did was actually kind of prospect for things that were making people angry at their neighbors, right? Um, so like the classic New Right campaign was, um, you know, local issues that were making people angry, right? So the classic New Right campaign that I write about my third book, Invisible Bridge, was in Kanawha County, West Virginia, which is basically um, uh, what's the the big Charleston, West Virginia, and it's and it's rural, right. and it's rural surround, right? Uh, the school board had assigned a new suite of textbooks for all the kids to read: language arts books, English books that were you know perceived as um, paganistic, basically. I mean, these were a fundamentalists, right? So, for example, one of the exercises in one of the books that became kind of like the, you know, Dr. Seuss of 1974 in, 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 in West Virginia was um, compare Greek myths to, you know, your own religious myths, right? Which suggests hmm. that this is just a story, that, that, that the Bible doesn't reveal truth. And liberals were very naive about this stuff. They didn't understand that, you know, they didn't understand conservatism. They didn't understand right. That, you know, people ground themselves in these deep faith, right? So yes. um, it became this huge hullabaloo and it became such a controversy that someone literally firebombed the school board building. And oh where, so where the organizing discontent comes is where the kind of actual model for electing a conservative president six years later comes is there's this new think tank, the Heritage Foundation. And they send mm. people down to West Virginia to organize them. First of all, they give them legal help. Literally, they, they defend the guy who bombed, who was uh, accused of bombing the school board and throwing dynamite through the windows of the school. But they also hooked them up with people who are organizing against, quote unquote, you know, socialist textbooks in you know, Texas and California. You know, and there are politicians who are picking up on this and there are radio hosts who are picking up on this. Um, so what I kind of narrate, one part of the Reagan coalition is these people who were looking for the most divisive social issues to basically turn people who weren't necessarily seeing themselves as political actors and turn them into political actors. 
right? And a lot of fundamentalists didn't get involved in politics because it was seen as worldly, right? It was just a sleeping giant that they awakened. Well, you, you know, it's so interesting. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever heard, like, um, like the, in political science, you know, there, there's like this phrase, like in group, out group, mm-hmm. and there's been yep. a lot of really great studies about it. Um, you know, like going as far back as like, I don't know, like 19, early 1900s with like Henry, uh, Toshfell. Um, and then there was like a follow on study in 2014, I think it was like in the proceedings of the national Academy of science where they talked about like this, um, motive attribution asymmetry. They looked at, a bunch of like Democrats and Republicans and they looked at a bunch of Israelis and Palestinians mm. to try to figure out like, um, like how, why they think their in group is so like altruistic mm. and all about love and all about grace yeah. and all the, the enemy wants to destroy uh, and, them. Yeah. And the other guys like, like represent all the things that are just the opposite, you know, like, <laughs> and, and, and it's interesting from your fangs there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly you know like like so so i could easily sit here and just just think that like you know all the the ideas the progressive you know ideas movements you know policies are in the interest of of mankind and josh will think the same thing about the conservative views mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and but yet we may you know be, be behind the scenes like vilify each other's like policy standpoints because oh, yeah, you're you like yeah you're what he was saying about you josh <laughs> I can only bad. imagine. <laughs> so, so I, I'm curious, like you know, as as a as a as a uh, historian, you know, like are you are you seeing like the um, I don't know, like the erosion of commonalities in political discourse, you know, yeah, um, I where I don't really model it in that way, actually, because mm-hmm. you know I think that um, uh, the Democratic Party is actually, you know, a pretty pluralist political party with people with lots of different views, right? It does have a centrist wing. You know, they even had a, a, a pro-life priest, you know, a, a speak mm-hmm. convention in 2020, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at, you know, kind of like um, um, surveys of whether people want to cooperate, you know, they think that their leader should reach across the aisle and cooperate, overwhelmingly Democrats do and Republicans don't. So it's not just a symmetry hmm. to, you know, it's not, it's not snitches, you know, like the kids and our friend, Dr. <laughs> Dr. You know, it's like mm-hmm. some guys have stars and some don't. They're, they're very different mm-hmm. kinds of formations. Right. And that huh. Republicans are much more conservatives are much more ideological, uh, you know, basically see themselves fighting, um, you know, for Armageddon, you know, for the, for, the, for, 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 you know, fighting, you know, it's onward Christian soldiers, right? They're fighting for civilizational stakes. Right. And, um, the striking thing, um, about the democratic party to me in my lifetime is all the people they've, they've raised up as leaders whose calling card was, um, pluralism and, 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 and solicitude towards the other side. I mean, if you look at, Barack Obama's famous speech, there is no red America, there is no blue America, right? Or, you know, mm. uh, Michael Dukakis's um, uh, slogan was, this election is not about ideology, it's about competence. 
you know, or Bill Clinton saying the end of the age of big government is over, you know, and kind of, you know, introducing so many policy ideas that were associated with conservatives, whereas conservatives, even in the face of all this, became more and more um, militant. And, you know, to the, to the point where and one of the ways I interpret the QAnon phenomenon, which is so fascinating to me, is since in a lot of ways, the Democrats literally are such a non-threatening party, you know, it's like, oh, my God, they want to you know, shove free healthcare down your throat and build a highway for you, you know, that they had to make up this story <laughs> literally of, 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 of cannibalism because there's no, there's no there there. Right. Um, mm-hmm. to kind of make yeah. a credible story about the Democrats being satanic. They had to make up this, you know, kind of crazy conspiracy theory. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's not funny, like Democrats I, I, one of their flaws and they're not, you know, kind of, uh, hmm. you know, uh, intolerant sure. liberals, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm talking yeah. about in ideal types and 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 tolerant conservatives. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because I I I I listened to you on um like I I know you you were on Michael Moore's uh, podcast Rumble and and I remember like you, you guys were chatting about you know but the conservatives have all the guns you know <laughs> or something like that right. so so like there literally you, was I, a libertarian I, I, on Twitter today a big 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 guy Matt Welch who said um uh, uh voting isn't isn't a human human right but but owning a gun is. <laughs> yeah it which is which is so weird to get a gun than, than it is to vote he said that yeah and 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 what, what what struck me was you know like you guys were talking about the you know the insurrection of january 6th and i and i really appreciated what you said about you know yeah i, I wish that they would get felonies so they couldn't own guns you know oh um God. although although like 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 i've been following sort of that story i've been following a lot of reporters and i i'm 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 pessimistic that people are going to be charged with felonies. They'll probably just be charged with a bunch of misdemeanor trespassing misdemeanors, you know, or something like that. Um, and, um, like if if you want to listen to some really good political insight, like um, the Lawfare podcast is a, is a really great one. Um, and, uh, they do a pretty in-depth analysis and, you know, out of like the 800 people that might be charged when it's all said and done, maybe 30 or 40 might, you know, get the sedition charge and everyone else is just going to, you know, basically get a parking ticket or something like that. So, um, it's really, uh, it's really discouraging, but, um, but no, I, I just thought that was, uh, interesting what, what you said. Um, yeah, that's really fascinating. I, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm obviously, I mean, I'm very conservative. I'm, excuse me, I'm much less so now than I was, uh-huh. um, I blame Will. So, uh-huh. well, it's interesting. I, I, mean, Churchill I... <laughs> used to say, if you're not a socialist when you're young, you don't have a heart. If you're not conservative when you're old, you don't have a brain. But I do find people <laughs> becoming like my dad more liberal as they get older these days. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't really know what the issue is, and I, I think I would say the same thing with my dad. Actually, for the first time, I ever heard him say um, something like, "You know, if I if Trump is a." Like if a Republican party is the party of Trump, then I'm not a Republican and, and which he never voted. Like he, he always voted Republican his entire life. He's a pastor, similar to God, like very conservative, ultra conservative pastor. Mm-hmm. That's a Pentecostal, that uh, Pentecostal, um, uh, sacra. I don't want to say sacra. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. That's fine. I understand. <laughs> Cult, sect, whatever. <laughs> No, but um, I, 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 kid. I think I think he's going to be slayed in the spirit right here. Yes, dude, I might, dude. Yeah. <laughs> well, wait till you get. If I start wait, speaking, wait till you get to um the the Washington for Jesus rally, which was which was a, a big rally on the mall organized by Pentecostals. Uh, oh man, 
There's a there's oh, a guy in there. There's 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 one of the preachers. I couldn't identify him. I I I, uh, I actually um, sent I out some, some 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 pictures of this guy to my my Pentecostal friends. But one of the preachers had just gotten back from a um, refugee camp in um, Southeast Asia. Refugees from Cambodia from the terrible wars they had there in the in the in the 1970s. And he said, "It's just great news." You know, it brought, it brought, it's brought 30,000 Cambodians to the foot of the cross. You know, this war has been great. Go, man. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a whole nother thing. That's hard. But what, one of the things though, the questions I have, um, and then I think we'll will have one final one, but if, if you like, so we're thinking about conservatives and liberals in our country today, um, what lessons do you think we should learn from the past from your writing. Like what, what lessons do we need to learn or that you've learned that you would hope that we could learn um, so that we're moving forward today, still keeping our unique identities and our unique yeah. like thoughts, but at the same time able to, f- you know, forge a path forward for for that's a really good way of putting it because that's actually kind of how i would put it a lot of people do say oh how can we unite as a country right and i think the most important thing i've learned and the most kind of important thing i try to get across in my book is you know a a country as big and complicated and diverse as america is not really ever going to be you know kind of united you know unity is a reasonably good value but it's not like the it's not the most important value to me you know, civility, you know, going home after you lose, you know, following the rules. Yes. Right. But, um, you know, uh, often a call to unity at all costs in, in American history. And this is what I've, this is to answer your question about what I've learned from history has often been cover for, um, yeah. evading the imperative of justice. Right. So when you think about, you know, um, in the book Invisible Bridge, I kind of start out in the preface by talking about this explicitly. I talk about actually the period after the Civil War, where kind of like the elites everywhere, the most important thing, uh, um, the most important public value was was unity between the North and the South. And they would stage all these kind of really bizarre, like, um, rituals, you know, parades with, you know, kind of Union veterans and Confederate veterans, you know, kind of walking down the street in Boston. But, you know, meanwhile, what they were unifying by behind was looking the other way while the South restored white supremacy. Right. Uh, mm. Unity was a way to not enforce, you know, the 13th, 14th and 14th, 15th and 16th Amendments. So I think the, I think the most important thing I've learned is the moral, political and even spiritual importance of feeling comfortable with kind of conflict uh, and not to paper it over because to me, the original sin in America is just kind of like what happened at the constitutional convention where they're like, we'll just paper over this whole slavery thing and hope mm-hmm. it goes away. And it just festered. Right. And to me, that's mm-hmm. the pattern that repeats itself over and over in American history. Cause we've never really had that kind of truth and reconciliation. Uh, and, and before you can have reconciliation, you have to have acknowledgement of the wound. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think feeling comfortable with, with conflict is a really important thing for Americans to learn. And one of the most one of the things I liked the least about Reagan was um, that he basically um, shut that down with a rhetoric that basically said America's always the best. America's always the best. America's always the best. 
and basically systematically asked Americans to avert their gaze from kind of the the, the tatters in our in our national fabric. Mm, wow. Now, my my last question for you is, you know, like we've we've all heard the term like Christian right or whatever, you know, like like it seems like um, most Christians seem to affiliate with the conservative or Republican Party because of like their self-described affinity for, you know, morality and values and all this other kind of stuff, you know, but but like there are there are few conservatives that, you know, aren't necessarily people of faith, you know, like I'm thinking like Rick Wilson and, you know, Trump, like, like come to mind. Um, so, so like, I'm curious if is like, is like, what do you think is a good secular argument for social conservative conservatism, like outside the context of faith? Oh, that's, um, question, and have you, yeah. have you seen that? Well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, when I say that, you know, um, the Democrats are a pretty pluralistic party with lots of different aspects in it. I think, you know, one of the cool things about being a liberal, since it's kind of a pluralist ideology and it's not about kind of like destroying the enemy, is you can you can you can see the value of, you know, conservative values. Right. Um, So, um, you know, I mean, a good, you know, secular argument for, you know, the value of, you know, having, you know, strong families Right. is something actually Jimmy Carter pushed very, very, very strongly. You know, he's but, but he also said, you know, we need one of the ways we need strong families is to have policies that make it easier for people to take care of their families, like having, you know, better subsidies for, you know, um, home health care. Right. Hmm. Uh, so. Um, and that's, you know, like the, the, the most powerful secular argument for conservatism that I write about in the book. I don't think they were good intellectual arguments, but they were convincing arguments to a lot of people at the time, you know, were these arguments about, you know, trickle down economics, right? There were that, that basically if the rich are able to keep their money, they'll create jobs for the rest of us. Right. Um, so that was certainly a secular argument. I don't think it's a good one. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, social policies that, you know, kind of, generally speaking, kind of reward effort and work, that's a, that's taken to be a conservative value. You know, you know, they're always talking about people on the dole and, you know, people, you know, living the wealth, the safety net has become a hammock, you know, but I mean, if you really mm-hmm. want to talk about, you yeah. know, people, you know, the, 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 how hard it is to sustain a healthy society when people don't feel like their work is rewarded, then you start talking about things like minimum wage and, you know, clamping down on private equity you know, I heard yesterday, you know, when private equity, um, you know, buys a nursing home, um, this guy was like, um, I was getting $3 more an hour as a, as a, as a personal shopper for Amazon groceries than I was at a, for, as a you know, CNA at a nursing home. Right. So, you know, when you're talking about stability, you know, and people being able to take care of each other, you know, and being able to be free and independent, you know, to be able to live, you know, a mm-hmm. life of, of dignity without dependency, then, you know, the state has to do stuff, you know, it has to protect people from depredations because we live in a society in which, yeah. you know, corporations are very powerful, right? I mean, a lot of conservatives describe themselves as, oh, we're, I'm a classic liberal, classical liberal, right? By which they mean weak government. But, you know, classic liberals who came about in the 18th century, that was before they had, you know, Walmart, which is bigger than a lot of countries, 
right? So you need a, a somewhat strong state <laughs> yeah. to protect yourself yeah. from Walmart, right? So I think, you know, the yeah. best secular yeah. argument for conservatism at its best is that it, it um, creates liberty. You know, it creates liberty in the sense of not just liberty from the government, but, you know, liberty to leave your job if you don't like your job. You know, liberty to basically um, raise your family in kind of comfort and and some degree of stability, right? I mean, to me, th- these yeah. another word for this is liberalism. <laughs> so there. <laughs> yeah, you know, because because it's almost like like my 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 biggest yeah. issue with a lot of um, conservative policies Uncle is Joe, you it's, know it's a sweet old man is in the White House who's you know all about us taking care of each other you know <laughs> you know like like with, with with traditional like conservatism it's like yeah um, you know smaller government um, with the exception of like what you do in what what you do in the bedroom you know like then we want big government you know like 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 I don't want you know same sex marriage. Um, for a variety of different reasons, you know, so I'm going to legislate that, you know, <laughs> like I'm going to say that you can't marry whoever it is you want, you know, and, and I just, for, for, for some reason, like I, I have a hard time believing, like if you, if you, if you are a non, if you're a person um, without faith, you know, how could you make an argument, you know, against like same sex marriage in the conservative party. It just, for me, it just seems very nonsensical. Now, if you were, if you were a person of faith, I, I, I can, I can connect the dots to understand where you're coming from, you know? Um, but for people that don't have faith, I, I don't see how well, you can. It seems like there's a lot more in the Bible about, you know, why you shouldn't eat shellfish than, you know, mm-hmm. why you shouldn't lie with a man as you would a woman, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. just me. I, I, I can make a pretty good argument why you shouldn't eat shellfish uh, just because it's gross, but that's just, that's just me. But, um, so, so anyways, the, uh, what's, uh, what's next for you uh, Rick? Like what do you, what do you got? What do you got working on? What do you, um, I mean, I'm promoting? doing a bunch you... of different things. I can't really, uh, you know, kind of like I've been literally working on this project since 1997. <laughs> I was in my 20s and now I'm in my fifties. So, um, got it. you know, I'm still, doing these interviews and writing articles about, you know, contemporary politics, but, mm. uh, you know, looking to get back to the 19th century. <laughs> That's nice. And, uh, how, how'd you, how'd you make out during, uh, the, the last year with COVID? Um, you know, thanks for asking, uh, within these four walls, life has been pretty good. So it's kind of mm. given me that sort of strength and stability and base to, you know, try and serve. Uh, yeah. I try, you know, do my best to do. Yeah, I was, I was, I was joking with some of my friends that like I have these recurring nightmares where like life's going to return back to normal and I have to start hanging out with people again. Yeah, yeah. Um, because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm generally an well, introvert. Kind of just, just... I, I'm, I'm not introverted, but I've had plenty of opportunities to like. I mean, it's like my advice during a pandemic when you're locked down is to um publish a big book because you'll get a lot of <laughs> interaction with lots of other human beings. Darn it missed my opportunity right, yeah, next um, you missed it, dude. It's, it's, we're gonna get another one so <laughs> yeah well well thank you so much rick for spending some time with us we really appreciate it you're uh you're really fun to talk to and just a wealth of information and um uh for those that haven't read any of his books you've got a lot to choose from um just just buy them now so when the next pandemic hits you right. can uh, sit back and and read them all and uh yeah thank you rick great well you guys are doing thank a good you. job keep on <laughs> all right Thanks, guys. And thank you to our listeners. We will uh, see you next week. Bye.